Hello and welcome to Brook Talks America and our Tactical Tuesdays podcast with Joe Dolio, also known as the Joe Stradamus and Brooke the Magnificent Show. Welcome, Joe. Hey, how are you, Brooke the Magnificent? Yes, and Joe Stradamus. I'm going to milk that for all it's worth, buddy, because it's very funny. Um, and we're going to be talking about it a little bit later. You are uh, unfortunately or fortunately Joe Stradamus indeed on what's happening with Russia. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, they're on the move, looking like it's going to be Christmas Day. Uh, anyways, so this week we're going to, you know, we're going to be a bit out of order in terms of the chapters chapter that we're discussing. I was just feeling that because it's Christmas and we're celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ, who himself was a warrior, that it would be good to focus this episode on the spiritual and biblical aspect of this time that we're in with the Holy Days. And I have said that on a separate note, like since the left wants to take it out of Merry Christmas and call it Happy Holidays, we should say holidays is for holy days. We should just say, okay, Happy Holidays. And that'll make them crazy. Right? That's yeah. a great idea. Isn't that good? Yeah. So they'll be it like, is. it's a toss up. Let me see. Merry Christmas or happy holidays. So anything I can do to tweak them is fun. So, but the, um, the spiritual and biblical aspect of this time is it relates to the issue of preparedness, but also what it means to be a warrior. Joe does a way of the warrior class, which if you've listened to our podcast, you'll know was the impetus right for him getting into writing blogs and ultimately his tactical wisdom book series all the podcasts you can find on my website brooktalksamerica.com obviously his books are on tactical-wisdom.com and all the podcasts are also you can hear them on iheart spotify apple itunes all those so um the, the book series is based on the Bible and what Joe sees as the ultimate tactical handbook, the Bible, right? All of these, they're not new. It happened way back then, these these tips and um, tactics. We'll, get, we'll be getting into that a little bit later because I want to incorporate that into what I see as a lack of warriors in our current environment. Men, right? Obviously women too. Okay, I'm an alpha female warrior, but particularly men who are not fighting back against the tyranny that we're being terrorized with by people who oppose individual freedom. We'll be discussing things as, you know, in a generic way, but as it relates to the issues of freedom and liberty, opposition to people and institutions who want to take that away, and ultimately what we see as some of the potential events that will be coming to pass, both as Biden continues to hemorrhage support, which will likely make him even more dangerous. And also as the Great Reset and the globalists seek to impose more control. Joe, do you watch Tucker Carlson? God, yes. My my aunt believes Tucker Carlson is my long lost brother. <laughs> he <clears throat> is. He's the only thing I watch on Fox anymore. I mean, I like Gutfeld. Uh, I like Judge Deneen a little bit. But basically, I watch Tucker and he was really he was talking about it tonight and it made a lot of sense. You know, it gave me a little bit of hope because he's he is hemorrhaging badly. And one of the things that's always great to see is when it's the groups, you know, that that the Democrats think that they own, like black voters or Hispanic voters or whatever. They're hemorrhaging big time with Hispanic voters. One of the reasons is because Hispanic voters are not down with the whole tranny thing, which they're obsessed about. But I don't know. I, I don't really care why it is. But I, I think it's great. So 
The problem, though, you know, and he talked about it tonight, uh, is that it does make them more dangerous. Like, right. So a wounded, rabid dog is more dangerous because it's going to strike back. But before we get into it, I want you to explain your way of the warrior class, why you started it and what you discuss in it. It's actually every man a warrior, but it's the every same man thing. A warrior. Every okay. man a warrior. Um, it, it's actually ran by a group called the Navigators. It's been around for a while, and basically what it is is that men have to realize that we are in a spiritual war every day, and as long as you're not following God and you're not following the Bible, the devil has won. He's good. Yeah. He'll leave you alone. But the minute you start to turn towards God and you start to bear fruit in your in your journey, uh, going to church and, and leading your family, the devil will attack you. And you need certain tools to be able to fight back. And those tools are having a daily quiet time with God where you learn how to actually study the book, which is where all of this came from. Uh, it, there's a method of going in and taking a verse and figuring out how to apply it to your life. It's one thing to read the Bible. It's another thing to apply the Bible to your life, which right. is what these books try to do, right? We try to teach you ways to to apply biblical learnings towards your preparedness. So it teaches you how to have a quiet time and apply the book to your life. It teaches you how to actually pray in the way that the Bible instructs you to. And then it takes you through different issues that men face and how you, as a man and as a leader and as a warrior, you fight for your family and you lead your family. Uh, it talks about, um, book two talks about leading your your wife and your children. And then book three talks about the bigger issues like work and finances and making your life count and leaving some sort of a lasting legacy that's more than just children, right? It, it's more of an impact you've made on the world. So it turned my life around from a point where I was literally self-destructing, destroying every relationship I'd ever had. I destroyed a business and everything was going downhill. And I had been blaming everyone but myself until I took this course. And learned it. So now I flipped around and I'm teaching others this course and um, I'm hoping that it has the same effect. And, you know, what's crazy is I've taught it at my own church. And then I said, hey, guys, I have this crazy idea. Now that I've got these books out here, I've got followers all over the country and all over the world on Twitter. Why don't we take our church ministry of every man a warrior and offer it out on Twitter? So my first group, I had five or six people sign up. My second group, I've had 10 people sign up, and we've got people in Brazil. We've got people from all over the country meeting online and doing this study together, and uh, it's really having impact in men's lives. Wow, that is so awesome. And you have said, you have mentioned that people have commented on your book saying in one part in particular, like you have, we have a fitness chapter, which we're going to be discussing next time, is that they started doing that and they lost weight. So you have impacted in different ways. Yeah, I've impacted them in all kinds of different ways. And I really like that. But the ones that I love and that I get um, are people who say, you know what? I really I got your books for the preparedness info. And I, and I didn't even I kind of skimmed over the verses in the beginning. Right. But when I went back and reread it, I realized how the verses you put at the beginning of each chapter tied directly to that thing. And it got me to open the Bible. Boom. That's all I needed to hear. And, and somebody said that on Twitter last night. And then this morning, I got an email from a pastor, and he says, listen, man, I, I just finished your first book. I, I need to order them for my sons and grandsons. So I was like, yeah, absolutely. And so we worked out a special deal, and he goes, and listen, after the new year, I'm going to mention it my men's group, and I think we're going to lead a group. There are three different churches on two continents 
using the baseline training manual as a Bible study. How cool is that? Wow, that is so great. Yeah. And I and I really like that about the book, too, is like it's not just preparedness. It is preparedness from a biblical standpoint. So it's always bringing the the principle of God and godliness. Yes, we're talking about self-defense and everything like that, but keeping God first in everything, even that. And I say it's spiritual preparedness is important, too. Um, oh, yeah. We can't go through a tough time and survive and yet lose our humanity and our connection to God. So yes. we have to do that. And I get a lot of pushback in that, really, from people who say, oh, but Jesus was a pacifist. I have no <laughs> idea where you got that idea because he was not. And, um, and that, and that you know, God doesn't want you to, to defend yourself. Well, Moses defended another Jew from what at the time would have been a policeman, and he killed him. And that still made it into the Bible. And I think if it was a bad thing, it wouldn't have made it into the Bible. Yeah. So God does want you to defend yourself. God does want you to live. Um, I, I don't know. Uh, people have this misconception. And so I thought that if I could tell these stories and tie them back to practical applications, it would help people. And that's where Elijah came in. Uh, as I was first starting this idea of writing this book, uh, we were at church one Sunday and the pastor started talking about Elijah. And, and everyone who knows me says that I have this head tilt when I suddenly start paying a lot more attention to something. <laughs> so I was told that my head tilted when he started telling the story. And I thought, boy, that's going to be the warrior study for this first book. So kind of neat that's, stuff. Yeah. Well, and you mentioned, too, it's it's definitely it's not something that's talked about enough, in my opinion. We are absolutely in a spiritual war as much as there is a, you know, a tangible war where they're trying to take our freedoms and everything like that. It's almost palpable in the air. And the, the left is acting like demons, whoever whoever is trying to impose a great reset who's who's trying to impose control and everything who's who's crazy with this pandemic and the masks and the jabs and everything like that it's literally like they're possessed by demons after trump won the videos you can see them like libs of tiktok and it's you know there's they're on twitter they're completely insane and they definitely look antifa's possessed by demons i mean all these people are insane so let's tell you why they have to defeat christianity yeah. There is one thing that Christianity gives you that no other religion on the planet can, and that's hope. Yes. And yes. if they can take away your hope, then all of a sudden you'll decide to be dependent upon them because you can't do it by yourself. Right. And as you go through this book, and that's where this whole conflict came up yesterday with some other guy on Twitter, was that uh, Galatians 5.1 says that, that um, it is for freedom's sake that Christ has set you free. Therefore, do not ever let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. We were meant to be free. We were not meant to rely on others uh, for for our every need. You mean Jesus wasn't a socialist? <laughs> That's another <laughs> one. You know, they all say, oh, no, Jesus was a socialist. Well, um, I mentioned this in, in book one and I mentioned it again in book three, but Paul gave us the rule on that. And it says that he who does not work does not eat. That's not wow. socialism. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I, I, I don't, I wouldn't know what the actual ver Bible verse is, but I can't imagine for the life of me that Jesus would have said, "Oh yeah, take from some people to give to others." No, you sell your cloak and come follow me. Not you sell his cloak or her cloak, right? Right. Yeah. Right. And um, yeah, 
that, that that's exactly it. You should give them what you have, but you shouldn't be taking from somebody else to do it. Exactly. And what's interesting is that they they never do themselves. The people that talk like that, they never give of their own. And there have been articles written, including by despondent leftists, how that the people that advocate for those types of policies are not generous at all, that conservatives are exponentially, not exponentially, as dementia says, but exponentially, which is actually a word, more generous with their own money, not with other people's money than leftists are. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, if you look around Twitter and you look at some of the best, um, the best charity projects that are out there, it's the corner of Twitter that they all hate and that I've dragged you into as an honorary member uh, <laughs> that, 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 that they call goon Twitter. Right. Yeah. And they're actually writing news stories about us like we're some it's sort crazy. of a terrorist organization. Yet every time there's a disaster, we come together to donate money. Um, a, a group of us just led a project where um, we call it the Friends in Need Project. We found people who we, we set up an email address and people who might be too proud to say they need help to buy gear like a right. plate or a radio or something they need for survival gear. We let friends nominate people. And what we did is we just got their addresses and we just shipped it to them. Right. right? So a bunch of people this week are going to be getting gear. Uh, I personally sent a vest to a guy and I just sent a radio to someone today and I sent on a belt to another guy. And there was one woman who said she wanted help learning how to teach her sons to read a map and compass. Well, she got copies of my books. So um, just just little things like that. And yet they say that we're the dangerous ones. But every time I see a charity project, I don't see their names on the GoFundMe as I'm scrolling by and I'm making my donation. Oh, exactly. Not only that, but, you know, so Alwyn Cash, thank God, had finally gotten his Medal of Honor. I It made me nauseous to my stomach that it was it was dementia that was giving it to him. But whatever, you you know, there's nothing we could do about that. But so it was it was um, Stocky Milk Coffee, Eddie and uh, the other guy, I can't remember his name. They started a, a GoFundMe to enable his family to be able to go to the ceremony. And people were like actually giving them grief. I think it was Mill Twitter that was giving them grief over it and said, what did you do? Nothing. I'm just going to bitch about it. But they were mad somehow or another. They were mad that they that they uh, raised money to send Alwyn Cash's family to go see him get the Medal of Honor. It's absolutely ridiculous. It's also absolutely ridiculous that we had to wait this long for him to get it. Yeah, is, is literally what it's for. Him and uh, one of my heroes, and I give every young man who's joining the military uh, a book written by Sergeant Major Brad Castle. The book is called My Men Are My Heroes. So in the Battle of Fallujah, uh, Sergeant Major Castle at the time was a first sergeant. He was he was in his late 30s. He had a bunch of young 19-year-old men in his platoon, and they were trapped in a building, and the sergeants had them pinned down. So Sergeant Major Castle goes in the building. And decides he's going to save his boys. Well, while he's in there, he gets shot. And he gets shot a couple of times. He's trying to get the kids out. And a grenade pops around the corner. Being a United States Marine and realizing his age versus the age of the young men with him. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm telling the story. Uh, Brad lays on the grenade. And it goes off. But he lives. 
And the, the iconic photo taken by an AP photographer is two of those young Marines carrying him out of the building and he's conscious and he still has a gun in his hand. So he's been shot four times and he laid on a grenade and it blew up, but he was still in the fight. That man is a warrior. Yeah. And he did not get the Medal of Honor. Wow. Yeah. At the Navy Cross, the second highest, but still. Yeah, he should. Well, and and this is like an aside, but, you know, Alwyn Cash was the first black uh, soldier in the since two since 9-11 to get the Medal of Honor. And I was thinking that, you know, I mean, I was glad he got it. Not that he was black, but that he got it. But of course, being the first black, you know, soldier, I thought that was great. But I thought maybe that's that's another issue that it's probably more than that. You, you know, that the vast majority of, of, of people in, in the military world. And I suppose I can really only speak to the Marine Corps world. But we don't even consider that. Right. In right. The Marine Corps, you learn that there are light green and dark green Marines, but you're all green. Right. Right. And, and we don't even consider that. And just we let actions speak. And his actions certainly dictated it. Well, no, I'm saying to to have ever been prevented. I think there is a. Absolutely. It took too long. Right. And I think there's still a Vietnam veteran who is up for the people. Are, there's a campaign to get him the Medal of Honor. And I thought I would just be horrified to ever think that there was a, you know, pr- a to, to exclusionary policy about that, you know, because I'm sure that there are many more soldiers that have acted in that way that might deserve it. You know, so it's not something you ever give for that reason, but it would never want anybody to be excluded. But anyways, so now that we're talking um, about Elijah as a warrior, you mentioned, you know, briefly that you were sitting in church and you tilted your head. Um, Why you specifically chose him to talk about, especially I was saying that like he's an Old Testament figure, how his experiences intertwine with the tips for preparedness. And for the audience, uh, because the chapter deals with specific Bible verses in relation to this, if there are any verses that you're going to reference, if you want to read them, most of them are are short, probably one sentence, you know, just to give context. So expound on that for us. Why did you choose Absolutely. him? So the whole story is found in uh, in First Kings 17 to 21. And I chose this whole thing because um, at the time, Elijah was an advisor to the king, right? And the king's wife, though, hated him. They had a different religion. They weren't Jewish, right? They were of, of, of a different religion. So she wanted Elijah killed. So there, what, what, what interested me about the story was that the government was attempting to suppress Elijah and his people. Boy, does that sound familiar, right? <laughs> yeah. And she chased him around. They, they they set up an undercover operation at one point to do a sting on him, and we'll get to that in a few minutes. And just all these things made me feel that they're telling the story of something that could happen today, right? And 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 so when it, when it first begins, you know, he makes this unpopular uh, prophecy about a a um, a drought that was going to happen in the kingdom. So God says, hey, man, they're going to try to kill you. You need to get out of here. And and if you look at it in, um, they say he sends him out into the woods. And it says in in 1 Kings 17.4 uh, that the angel of the Lord told him, you will drink from the brook and I've directed the ravens to supply you with food there. Now, you might at first think the ravens, bro, ravens are going to feed him. But <laughs> The Bible is one of those books that it's not necessarily always meant to be taken 100 percent literal. 
right? It says later on that the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. But what kind of a bird is a raven? What does a raven eat? A raven is like a vulture, right? So it finds dead animals. It finds food and gets it. So could it? Could the ravens will supply you with food? I mean, watch the ravens and learn how they find or wait for animals to die or go to places where animals are dying where you will have food, right? So right. essentially God was Metaphorical as opposed to literal. Right. So yeah. he was te- teaching him to live off the land, actually. Right. Right. So that's kind of the direction, right? So so that was that was the first thing on there. And he told him specifically to go to this ravine where there was a river. So when you're looking at the first part of the story, there's three lessons for you there. Um, pick a location that has access to water. He went to a ravine with a river running through it. Have skills to enable you to live off the land. That's the whole follow the ravens thing. And three, um, when the water dried up where he was at, he left. Pretty simple. If conditions change, be ready to leave. So in the in the book of Elijah, the condition that changed was the water ran out. But if I find a safe place in a without rule of law situation and it's fine for six months, but then people start coming by and there's threats being made, I should just leave rather than staying there and continue to expose myself to danger. So those are the right. first three lessons out of Elijah um, from it. Which shows be flexible. Be flexible. Exactly yeah. right. Exactly right. And, and it also, he left there with nothing. So that also illustrates my point of um, skills being more important than gear, right? right? He didn't take anything with him. He just went and lived off the land. Now, in the next chapter, in chapter 18, uh, you're going to learn about Obadiah. Obadiah was a, a priest who followed Elijah, right? And so when when the when the king's wife started hunting Elijah, and she's gonna she's gonna find him and she's gonna kill him. For us here in modern times, that means Director Ray was sending his people out to kick <laughs> down your door at 4 a.m. and try to get you. Um, Obadiah took a whole bunch of the priests and said, "Listen, I, I gotta hide these guys." So what he did was he took a hundred men and he took them and he hit them in two different caves and he socked the caves with food and water and all that kind of stuff. So um, he hid them. Then when he was captured, he gets interrogated and all that stuff. And he ends up having to give up one spot. Right. But only 50 of the 100 priests were captured. The other 50 were able to go about their lives because Obadiah had a plan. So that's the next section of principles we learn from that story in, in chapter 18. It's one, have multiple locations. Right. Not just one. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. Right. Um, for your supplies, never put them all in one place in case it's found or seized. And here in America, the Defense Production Act allows them to seize your supplies. Um, number three, if you're forced to, only reveal one location. They'll think they've gotten everything, and you'll still have half of your stuff at least, right? So important stuff. Um, and you could theoretically have a planned surrender stash for exactly that purpose. So uh, I tell people in book three is like if you're leaving a spot and, and the bad guys are coming, pretend like you hit a whole bunch of stuff. So leave a little bit of food in a semi hidden state so they feel like they found your secret stash. Right. On, right. And you still have the rest of your supplies available. Um, a and little then, psyop action there. Right. And one of the other things that Obadiah did is he had a whole network of people who would bring supplies there. So it wasn't always one person coming to that cave so that if they were ever observed, 
It was just different people coming and going, coming and going. So it didn't look like one conspiracy, right? It looked like just normal life. So you got to have a network and a plan, right? So that that's kind of a cool story in in uh, in that chapter. But then um, Elijah then comes back after hearing this whole story. He goes back to the capital, and the queen, whose name happens to be Jezebel, ironic, right? Right. The Jezebel that you know about from the Bible. So um, she sends him a messenger, and she says, "Listen, I'm going to translate it into modern day English because it's a little, it's a little, little wordy in the, in the Bible." She said, "Look here, bro, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> so, what do you think you should do when somebody tells you straight up that they're going to kill you? You bug out. <laughs> you bug out. So when he did that, he immediately took off. So first thing, listen to when people tell you what they're going to do. Uh, well, how does that apply to modern life?" Take a look at Twitter. You have leftists all over saying they would really like to kill you. They want to force you out of a job. They want you to live in your own house. And if you ever come out, they're perfectly okay with killing you. They literally say that if you don't get the shot, you should be shot. Literally on Twitter. And they still have they still have accounts. They are. They are. And you should every bit of your fiber of your soul. You should take them at their word and prepare for them to attempt to do that. So that, that's one of the lessons we take. Listen to what people are telling you. Take them at their word and prepare accordingly. The other thing is, is that she told him she was coming for him. So he dodged. Never, ever accept a fight on somebody else's terms if you can avoid it, right? You pick the time and place. Don't let them. So that's why he took off. Um, but here's the thing. This time Elijah took off and he didn't have a plan. He ran straight out into the wilderness and, and, and gets rough. Uh, but I'm trying to get my computer to the right verse here. He gets out there. Things are quite rough. He had no plan, and he ran out into the desert. And he gets out there, continues on all by himself, and he sits down under a bush, and he says to God, "Um, look, man, I've had enough. Take my life, right? I'm no better than anybody else. Let me die here. And um, what I know about God and what you know about God is that God's not going to let you do that, right? um, Not if he has a plan. Right? So he's laying there wanting to die. And then an angel shows up. And as I put in my book, this was the first ever documented Uber Eats delivery. (laughs) Um, Because uh, the the, the angel shows up and uh, let me read this to you. It's uh, it's first Kings 19, five through seven. Uh, It says here, he laid down under a bush and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He, he looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat, for the journey is too much to you. So he got up and ate. Um, so the point is, is, is this. The, the lessons from here is that, first of all, food's always going to make you feel better when you're in a tough spot, right? Uh, eating something will always help. But the lessons to learn from his 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 panic running was never planned to move without food and water. That's why I always say you got to have right. that back with, with two canteens of water, a little bit of food, all that kind of stuff. Um, it's not just enough not to be at the physical danger spot. You have to be prepared for what you're going to do afterwards. Exactly right. Exactly right. And that's why I always say you should always have these bags with you, right? One or two of these bags. Right. Um, your bug out bag or five minute bag, whatever you call it, should contain at least some food and water and a means to get more food and purify more water. So whatever I've got for a bug out bag or an emergency bag, it's got to have a little bit of food and water in it. 
I should have some fish hooks. I should have some wire for making traps, some other way to get more food and some way to purify more water when I find it. So in, in verse 17, 6, the angel literally tells Elijah he needs food and water uh, for strength for his journey. And so do you. You got to have some sort of portable food. I just had a discussion earlier today with some guys who were talking about their five gallon buckets and they opened one and it was damaged. And I'm like, hold on. How many five gallon buckets can you carry if you have yeah. to leave? Right. You literally Especially can't. if they're packed with rice. I saw that thread. Yeah. It was like 200 pounds of rice. And I'm like, yeah, that's not going anywhere. Yeah. You're not going anywhere with that. <laughs> yeah. um, so, In the car so, with no gas. <laughs> right. In your car with no gas. Number four is that every situation looks better after a bite to eat. Um, another learning is that if you don't have food in a mobile mobile format to allow you to live long enough to get to your big 25 force, uh, 25 year stash, it doesn't matter how much you have stashed in your cabin in the woods. Yeah. If I don't have enough food and water to get there, it doesn't matter how much I have stored. Right. I'll die. So make sure you have enough portable food. And then uh, the last last learning from that is never just flee blindly. Always have a plan and a destination. Um, even in the military, when there's an ambush, the leader of the unit should call out a direction and a distance. An attack happens, boom, we're going 200 meters to the left, boys, go. You have to have a plan. You don't just all run blindly because then you would end up with no one in the same place and you end up leaving gear behind. So always have a plan. Right. Which also means you have to have the forethought to see, to think about the second, third and fourth order effects, too. Absolutely. See, you're, you're paying attention and you're taking notes, aren't you? <laughs> well, I have a bunch of military friends and we always use I always use the two, three, four. But anyways. Yeah. All right. So then after this, um, Elijah gets out of that. He, he heads back towards civilization and, and he gets to his, his own little bug out location, which is a cave in the mountains. So God says, all right, this is what I need you to do. So Ahab is, is doing bad things. Jezebel's forced him in a bad direction. I need you to develop a coalition of people to overthrow that government. Mm. Okay, we're just going to tell the story. We're not going to comment at all, okay? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, me sitting here going, I want to comment so badly, but I know people are listening. Go ahead. Okay, Agent Johansson, you can stop taking notes. <laughs> George uh, Boy. Sit down. Yeah. So, um, so he sends out and he finds 33 different kings or leaders of groups out there um, to come together to attack Ahab. So there's a couple of lessons in this building of the coalition. The enemy of your enemy might not be your friend, but he is indeed your ally. Right. So anyone who's got a common cause with you, with certain exceptions, is an ally. To um, build coalitions of nearby groups or residents to band together in the event of a larger forces needed for defense. Now, I talk about this in book three. Um, I, I, the chapter is called Joint Operations. So let's say you've gotten your group of friends together. You're going to defend Brooks' neighborhood. All right. So there, let's just say you're able to field about 12 people who are able to fight and defend. But there's a group of 100 coming. That group doesn't affect just your neighborhood. It affects the ones behind you and beside you, too. Right. So you need to be going out and talking to those other groups, these other neighborhoods all around you and have a plan to all come together when a bigger threat approaches. Right. That's a vital learning that we get. And it comes right from the story of Elijah. Um, now, when these 33 kings came together and they fought this great battle against Ahab and they lost despite having God on their side. 
because there were 33 different leaders and they each thought they should all lead their own group. So when you have 33 different people all having a battle and they all have their own objectives in mind, do you think you're going to win? Yeah, ego. So the third learning from that chapter is establish a clear chain of command because this large force, even though they totally outnumbered the other one, lost because each group had their own goals rather than one big goal. So um, they come back together, they reorganize, and they fight the big battle of Samaria. Now, some people will tell you that the Bible is fiction, but we do know that the battle of Samaria did occur in 857. We know that these particular people were all involved in it. So I suppose you can dispute if Elijah himself was involved, but all of the kings mentioned in the Bible were involved in this historically proven battle, right? Um, the Battle of Samaria, 857 BC. Uh, Israel wins the battle, uh, wins the battle despite being outnumbered, 7,000 versus 200,000. So um, here's why. Before the battle, uh, one of the kings sends a list of demands to Ahab. And boy, this is going to apply to the Russia thing right now. Right. So pretty tough. They wanted all of his gold and silver, his best wives, and poor Ahab. I wonder which wives didn't make the cut and how they felt about it. Because uh, he said, you know, just your best wives. Um, uh, so Ahab agreed to the, all of this. Said, I'll give, you, I'll give you my best wives. I'll give you my gold and silver and all of that. So what then happened next? The other king, Ben-Hadad, makes another series of even more demands. So Ahab had to refuse. So I point out that appeasement to demands only gets you more demands until you have nothing left, right? We can say all along that we're going to go along to get along, or we're going to appease the left by giving them this issue. But every time we give them ground on one issue, they go after another one. Look right? at coronavirus. Look at Corona. That's what my note. I'm looking at the book right here and I have my, my notes, Rona. It's like every little thing they gave it and they take you give them an inch. They'll take them out. They'll take 50 yards, 50 miles. They'll take I'll the whole home. county. You'll stay home for three months. Yeah. You know, so, so that's it. Exactly. Appeasement to demands only gets you more demands. Yeah. And two, uh, I, I point out here that the Munich Agreement of 1938 is a classic example of this. Hitler said, listen, I need more room. If you just give me Czechoslovakia, right, everything will be fine. And it lasted <laughs> three months, right? Yeah. So, so this whole thing of yesterday, Russia demanded a buffer zone, uh, basically the the territories of, of Donetsk and Luhansk. And if we give it to them, they're just going to ask for the next two in line. I mean, it, no matter what you give them, they're going to want more. But there are some lessons from the battle when you actually read this chapter, chapter twenty. Um, the Arameans weren't surprised by the Israelis because they put out scouts and they knew that when they were coming. So you got to have scouts. Always have observation posts, listening posts, and send out scouts. Even if you only send one or two guys, send someone. Israel right. went with a small force because they let their their small unit leaders or sergeants and lieutenants run their own battles rather than trying to micromanage. The Arameans didn't, and they lost. Um, so it's important that you take that lesson. But the best lesson of all of this comes in chapter 21 uh, in, in First Kings. In it, there's a guy named Naboth, and he, he owns this vineyard. So King Ahab says, hey, man, I, I'd like that land. You got great fertile land, all right? And I'll pay you whatever it's worth. And Naboth says, hey, man, uh, I know what happened with 
Elijah and all this other stuff. And God told me not to give it to you. So Ahab goes home and he tells his wife Jezebel about it. And we know what a fine, upstanding citizen Jezebel is. And uh, she says, listen, I'm going to hook you up. I'm going to take care of this. So what she did was she sent a couple of government agents over to have a meeting with this guy. And and a lot of people will tell me, listen, you don't know. Yeah, I don't believe you. Uh, It's in uh, chapter 21. It's it's 1 Kings chapter 21, verse uh, 8. So she wrote letters and sent them to the elders and had everyone come to this big dinner. And we want to put Naboth at the at the head of the table. We want him to be the, the guest of honor. But I want you to put criminals next to him, right? I want you to see bad guys next to him so we can all say, hey, look, check out who he's hanging out. And then we can arrest him. And then we can stone him to death and we get to take his land. So. Um, man, does that sound familiar? I was just thinking about who's who's uh, Ray Epps. That's what I was thinking about, and the Jordan boys. Yeah. So, so, so here's the thing, uh, and the lesson to be learned from that: Naboth does eventually get arrested and killed. They seize his land. Here's the thing: entrapment to meet government goals has existed as long as man has established governments. It's gone on forever. Oh, yeah. I want this guy's land. Well, I'm going to set something up, and I'm going to accuse him of a crime, and I'm going to kill him. And there we go. Vikings were well known for this. It happened all over the world. Um, Two, the more tyrannical a government becomes, the more it uses informants and undercover agents. Read that a few times. Yeah. Write that down. Highlight it. If you've got my book, page 170, highlight number two. The more tyrannical a government becomes, the more it relies on undercover agents and informants like Ray Epps. Yeah. Uh, January 6th, anybody? Well, uh, the entire purpose of January 6th was to skirt was to discourage the right from ever doing anything like it again. Yeah. And that's why they're arresting all these people. And that's why they made it worse than it really was going to be. Anyway, number three, don't trust new people that no one else knows. And in my third book, I talk about you should never associate with someone you're not at least second level connected with. So a friend of a friend is okay, but a friend of a friend of a friend. I don't know that guy. And that's where the informants are. That third level connection Um, for vet anyone who wants to be affiliated with you. If someone's going to be affiliated with you, you need to know everything you can about them um, so that you don't end up in a situation like these people in Michigan have found themselves in. Uh, And number five, the biggest one, if anyone starts talking about illegal action or building illegal items, run, cut them off. That's it. You're not talking to them anymore. Um, I think the biggest case that everyone can think of on this is, is Randy Weaver. He owned yeah. a shotgun, didn't want to sell it. The ATF kept asking him and asking him and asking him. So finally he sells it to them, and then they immediately arrest him and try to turn him into an informant in a group that he was not a member of. And um, why so, were they why were they looking at him in the first place, though? Because he had a couple of meetings where some of those people were at. Right. So what they were doing in, in the 70s and 80s, and, and they still do it now, is the government would watch all these meetings and record everyone's license plate number and find out everyone who attended these meetings, even if you didn't realize the purpose of the meeting or who was going to be there. Right. So you might go to what was billed as a community picnic, but there were two or three people that they were targeting there. They took down everybody's license plate number. Right. Tried to start conversations with everyone to find out who they could get on the hook. And it, it works that way to this day. Right. Um, 
a guy so, I know is in jail in uh, in St. Petersburg. He was involved with that. They tried to FBI tried to come with him. Um, Jeremy Brown. Yeah. Yeah. Green Beret. He's they tried to come tra- and trap him with the Oath Keepers and everything like that. He's in jail now for nothing. Well, it's January sixth. Yeah. And there's a lot of that going on, and and I'll point out that some of the people in January sixth aren't what they appeared to be. I mean, everyone says Enrique Tario was a former federal informant. Let me just tell you this, and all of you should get your pens out and write this down. There is no such thing as a former federal informant. Mm, They never let go of you. They always keep that charge in their back pocket um, ready to go on you. Right. And they will draw you back in when they need you for something. And um, so you can't say former. There is literally no such thing. So um, so I guess my whole point is that throughout the course of, of, of the book of, of, of First Kings 17 to 21, Elijah was a secret agent for God and he led his own subversive network and he tried to overthrow the government. And um, God wouldn't have told that story or had that story told to you unless it was uh, something that was right. Right. And he empowered him. And he empowered him every step of the way. And he wouldn't let him give up. That's yeah. the important part. Elijah tried to give up. And God was like, no, nah, I'm not done with you yet. You're not allowed to just give up. And, and that, that brings me back to a conversation I had a long time ago with, with somebody on my website. I, I was telling some stories about some skills. Uh, I think it was about setting up your own observation posts. This guy says, listen, I want to be prepared, but I don't want to play soldier boy. Well, OK, I get that. And, and I don't really don't think any of us do. But if Soldier Boy is the game that your opposition decides you are playing, exactly, you can't play chess. You can't play checkers, right? If everybody else is playing Scrabble, you can't play Yahtzee. So you have to be ready for it. And I think I think in martial arts we talk about this a lot too. Is a thing of a a student says to his master, he says, you know, you you teach us about war, yet you spend all this time in the garden. And the master says, it is far better to be a warrior in the garden than it is to be a gardener in a war yeah boy is that not some serious wisdom right there that's right that's right so okay so that was the story about elijah uh what do you think of my earlier statement about the lack of warriors fighting back against the you know the tyranny that we're experiencing obviously you know, just to qualify, I asked this question with the understanding we you just talked about it a little bit ago uh, of who might be listening to our podcast based on the subject matter. I think you understand what I mean. So we're talking generically, but yeah. you and I are of the same mindset that, you know, we can't just let this kind of stuff just continue to go on. And there so doesn't there, seem to be any pushback. You're absolutely right that there are not enough warriors doing anything. And I pose this question on on Twitter all the time is what, what is your red line, right? And if you don't if you don't act on this particular issue, yeah. you don't really have any red lines. And, and and for me, it's it's the vaccine mandate, right? There, there's nothing that authorizes the government to tell you you have to take a shot. And if if you cave in and say, no, nah, it's okay, I'm going to get my shot, and I'm going to make sure my kids do too, just because I don't want the government to come down on me, then you you have to admit that you don't have any red lines whatsoever in your life. And they can make you do anything they want going forward, which is really the whole purpose of this, right? It's a test. Yeah. So taking action does not necessarily mean taking violent action. Taking action could be 
petitioning your government for the redress of grievances. And I know it's scary because um, when we started doing that and attending school board meetings and making our displeasure known, first the FBI threatened us, then the FBI started to arrest people, right? Yeah. Where we're seeing people getting arrested for speaking out at these. But I think that people need to realize that the more angry the government gets about you speaking out, the more you're on the right track. If, if we were completely off base with this anti-CRT thing, right. they wouldn't care. They'd let us rant and rave. But because we are on the right track, they don't want that word to get out. So that's why they threaten the arrests and they're making the arrests and they're harassing people to discourage everyone else from doing it. Well, first they say they're not first they say it's not being taught. And then they say you're a bigot if you don't accept that it's being taught. So there's a little schizophrenia, but it's totally true about that. They don't want anybody to actually know about it because as soon as people found out about it and it's the irony of the pandemic is that all these parents were sitting at home watching what their kids were learning, finally, thank God. And they're like, no, we're not with this. We don't want our kids to learn this. You know, but you said something I probably in a podcast that we had before, just because you don't want the fight doesn't mean the fight's not going to come to you anyways. <laughs> so so that's kind of my whole point. Right. So everyone's been been saying I, I can't fight back because I'll lose my job. And I respect that. I totally do. Yeah. Or I can't fight back because I don't want to be locked me up because of this, that or the other thing. But coming up here on January 4th or shortly thereafter you're probably going to lose that job anyway, right? They're probably going to fire you for not taking the shot. So you're going to have to make a choice on that day. Was all my talk and all my refusal just talk or do yeah. I really feel that way, right? And if you're willing to, to, to go back on your principles, you never really had any, okay? So I posed this question from the other side. Uh, I think it was yesterday on Twitter. I said, all of these people who are not fighting back are only doing so out of fear of losing their job. What do you suppose is going to happen when they've already lost their job? That's an important right. thing that needs to be considered. So what's going to happen on the fourth is you're either going to have to take the shot and then shut up about it, or you're going to lose your job. I've now removed the last restriction to you doing something, whether it's protest, vote, run for office, whatever, right. uh, or other actions, we've removed that last impediment. Now you don't have an excuse. It's going to come down to either you're too lazy or you never really had the principles. And, right. and I just think that we are embarrassing our birthright. We are not. So agree with that. We really are not. And, um, and in all reality, if you look back at the history of the Old Testament and even the New Testament, uh, even in the New Testament, Peter cut off the ear of one of the Romans who tried to arrest Jesus, at least did something, and everybody else is doing nothing. Yeah. Um, they, oh, but but we, we're, we're going to be the bigger person. Being the bigger person lands you in a camp at some point. They're literally building camps and telling you they're building camps. <laughs> I mean, come on. At some point, something will have to be done and you will have to decide one way or the other. So I had a I had a call with a guy today. And I'm not going to out him or, or mention his name, but he was talking about he, he's not in America. He's actually in another country and he's 
talking about how we have to change people in America because America is the last hope for the world. We have to change their perception that they can't just sit on the sidelines. At some point, you're going to have to lean one way or the other. So, so we're talking about doing it in the form of fiction books. And he says that he wants to present stories where ordinary citizens are faced with that choice. Like you come into work that day and there's a resistance fighter hiding in your business. They've been wounded. The government's looking for them and the government is knocking on your door. At that point, you have two choices. Right. And so we want to create a series of of vignettes where people see that this is going to impact everyone in this country and that everyone will have no choice but to pick one side or the other. Right. And not just not just support that side, but actually do something. So that person in that scenario has a choice of opening the door and telling the telling the feds out there, hey, he's hiding over here or saying, I don't know what you're talking about. There's nobody here and helping the man who's been wounded. And and so you have to think that no one will be untouched by this. And I know it's a big, scary thought. And everyone says, well, if there's a civil conflict in the United States, what does that mean for the world? Um, do me a favor. Take a look at the news tonight. Russia is on the move. China is on the move. Yeah. The world is falling apart anyway, right? Um, there might as well be some last-ditch effort made. And let me just say this for the for Agent Johansson and his friends. Out. <laughs> My position has never been, nor will it ever be, overthrow the government of the United States. My position has always been and will remain since the day I was 18 years old and I raised my right hand to support and defend the Constitution of the United States. Right. If if that needs to be restored, then that should be done. How it gets restored, there are several options. And, and, and you know, they run the gamut from voting to exercising the rights guaranteed by the Constitution and Declaration of, of Independence. Somewhere on that spectrum is the answer to the solution. It's right. way toward one end at this point. but that's not for me to decide. Uh, well, well, and I, it says all enemies, what foreign and domestic. Exactly. Yeah. So we still have free speech in this country and we're not talking about anything concrete. We're talking in Minecraft here. Um, yeah. There will come a time when everyone will have to make a decision, whether they support actually the ideals represented in our founding documents. And I say documents because the declaration of independence matters too. Right. Uh, or whether whether we think that that was all just garbage and a, and a stupid experiment that should fail. And, and one of my greatest speech, one of my greatest um, historical speeches that I love is the Gettysburg Address, because everyone will have to decide at some point whether any nation so conceived and so dedicated may long endure. Mm. Everyone has to decide. Well, you know, they asked him. What have you given us? He says, a republic, if you can keep it. That's been the question for the entire time. More so now, I think, than ever, because the softness of the American citizen is stunning. The well, comfort. We allowed, our, we allowed our lives to become way too comfortable. Yeah. We, we allowed all this technology and all that to take over our lives. What's going to happen when somebody here in the next two weeks, as this world conflict starts to kick off, when somebody flips that light switch. Yeah. I mean, seriously. Yeah, well, and or and they 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 
conceivably could do it here and blame someone else, but the result is the same. It doesn't really matter. You know, we've talked about that on previous podcasts. And that's, that's why I always tell people it doesn't matter what happened. What matters is how you respond to it. Yeah. 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 Well, and they're going to be coming, you know, apparently he's giving some kind of speech tomorrow. So we'll, we'll see, you know, the, the, the doom and gloom speech, but well, you know, we'll have to see because people are waking up and it's going to be this small sliver of psychos. You know, what, what Tucker was talking about is these, there's an article that talked about how like white liberal women are legit mentally ill. And Tucker was talking about that tonight is the only people that like this madness are them like the white liberal suburban psycho. So the rest of the country's not with it. They're not with the jab. They're not with being arrested because you don't have the jab and all of this. So my prayer has always been, you know, it started with CRT. We've talked about a little bit. My prayer has always been, and it's the only way to save the country. It has to be a multiracial coalition. It absolutely must be a multiracial coalition. That is growing, I think, every day. Whether it'll be enough, I don't know. You know, I have a, an article like, are there enough patriots to save America? Because even some of the patriots, you know, they talk about, oh, I have this, you know, my Gucci shit, or I have this, you know, this piece or that piece or that, you know, all this stuff. And it's like, what are you doing? Nothing. Oh, man, I can't do nothing. I got a job. I got a family. I got this and that. And it's like, okay, well, watch The Patriot. Go watch The Patriot. Oh, I'm you know? telling you, everybody needs to watch that movie once a month. Yeah. I mean. Because seriously, it, it illustrates a point, right? Benjamin Martin in that movie refused to fight in the beginning yeah i got family i gotta i gotta take care of my family boy are we not hearing that every single day right yeah. now i i got i i can i gotta support my family guess what it only made it worse right. we lost family members before the fight even started right so um all you're doing is delaying the inevitable yeah well speaking of benjamin martin i like what he told his sons in the woods and i'll leave it at that people that know what I'm talking about, you know, if you know, you know. So with regard to uh, current events, you mentioned something that happened last year about around Christmas, which I don't even remember hearing about, to be honest, which is the Nashville truck bomber. Talk about what happened with that situation, because you think that now during the holidays or holy days, as we like to say for the uh, squeamish liberals who don't want Merry Christmas, uh, what that it could be potentially dangerous right now. What and what you think people should be preparing for, specifically like right around this time. So last year um, on Christmas Day, first thing in the morning, we had a truck bombing in Nashville. And the media memory hold it so fast because the facts that the FBI were coming out with were just nonsense. They stated it was a, a guy working alone for no reason, blew himself up in central Nashville. <laughs> I mean, it just makes no, no sense. Right. On Face. It would make more sense to say, well, it was an Islamic, uh, an Islamic terrorist who did a, um, a suicide bombing. That would at least make sense. But say it's just a guy who didn't want to hurt anybody, but blew something up. So on Christmas, that would make sense. On Christmas, right? Yeah. Um, mostly because he knew that there would be nobody down there. But when you look at what happened, his vehicle was placed directly over where the, the AT&T trunk lines went underneath, the, the lines that run internet and phone service in that area, and cell phone service. And his bomb projected from the side of his vehicle, if you watch the video on slow motion, right on into the AT&T building and took out communications uh, in about seven counties for several days. 
Okay. Um, boy, what do people do a lot on Christmas Day? Do they talk on the phone to family members? Yeah. So what a great day to find out if you can actually take down the phone system and the internet system. So um, the thing is, is that when I look at the video, and I'm by no means 100% an expert, but I know what an explosively formed penetrator bomb looks like. And that's what it was. It came out of the side of his vehicle and went directly across into the building. It's a technique that the Iranians developed mm. for use in Iraq against our soft-sided armored vehicles like like uh, um, like the M117 and um, the Humvee and things like that. It's made to send a jet of molten steel through the side of the vehicle and inside of it. Um, it's a very specific application. So I found it odd that this person used that. And just every story that came out from the FBI was was worse than the one before it. Like he donated a house to a woman that she claimed she's never met him. And, and all of this weird stuff was coming out. And yet it's a guy that literally no one had spoken to in forever. So yeah. the whole that kind of reminds that, me of the Vegas situation, which they can't seem it, to figure out anything yeah. about either. Yeah. Exactly. And that's where that, that's kind of what everyone started talking about. So the story vanished uh, and they just don't talk about it anymore. And you would think a story like that, a Christmas Day bombing in the heart of America, you don't get more heart of America than Nashville, Tennessee. Exactly. And um, you'd think that'd be bigger news, but it was gone in less than 24 hours. And so I think that that's something that we should be aware of. Right. And, and keep our eye on as we approach Christmas Day. Um, and there's also historical precedent. Um, I made a I made a prediction two weeks ago that um, Russia right would on Christmas Eve, and I was I was roundly roundly clowned by all kinds of people in the know, people mm -hmm. that I trust and like, uh, including one one pretty prominent guy who told me that I was crazy. It was going to take them at least 90 days to spin up. But this morning, the United Kingdom says, "Hey, uh, yep, we're almost positive that Russia is going to move on Christmas Eve." Russia has a history of moving on Christmas Eve. They invaded Afghanistan on Christmas Eve. Um, and people say, yeah, well, why, do you, why do you think that? And I said, well, it's Christmas Eve. Our, our watch centers are, are loosely staffed. And all of our senior decision makers are on vacation. They're all traveling with their families. Somebody goes, yeah, but in the Ukraine, they celebrate Christmas on January 6th. Okay. But they don't care about Ukraine. They're already invading their country. The Ukraine's going to know they're invading the Ukraine. Pretty simple. But if they wanted to delay us knowing, which is why they did it in Afghanistan on, this, on Christmas Eve, right? They wanted 24 to 48 hours before we could respond. And the way to do that is to attack on New Year's Eve. Or, I'm sorry, Christmas Eve. Right. So um, it looks like I'm probably going to be right. There's video emerging today of a bunch of uh, Russian reservists moving towards trains uh, and vehicles. And uh, there was some video that came out um, from the... Um, OSCE monitoring group, uh, some drone video from the middle of the night last night of a whole lot of Russian trucks crossing the border with no lights in the middle of the night last night um, and, and going into a position, turning around and coming back out after offloading. No one knows what they offloaded because it was undercover, but um, something happened last night. So the pace of things is really picking up. And this morning, Russia issued an ultimatum to us. Um, they actually addressed it specifically to the United States and said that we must stop um, all attempts to integrate the Ukraine into NATO, uh, which I said was exactly what they were going to demand, and that we must withdraw all NATO troops from the Ukraine and the Baltics, and that we had to respond immediately or they would take military action. 
So instead of responding to that, we get news of a new dog in the White House. That's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I don't know what's going to happen, but nothing good. Yeah. There's this is a segue. I don't know if this has anything to do with that, but there was a a truck that ran into a um a military convoy vehicle in Germany and it was yeah, supposedly yeah. uh on I purpose. This morning. I pointed out this morning when when I first saw the story, it was coming out of Russia today, and I know, take that with a grain of salt. Yeah. When it comes to hard breaking news, Russia today is the most reliable source because what they do is they put out the, the news. They don't they don't put any spin on it. Hey. Here's video. This truck is burning. And the story is that a truck rammed these three American military vehicles over here. So I put that out and said, hey, is anybody seeing this anywhere on American media? And it still has not been covered by American media. We're wow. getting a lot of European media on it now. And I pointed out that, boy, if I was actually a Russian intelligence agent and I wanted to cause as much discomfort in NATO as I could days before an invasion, I might do something like this. Right. So, yeah, well, it's obviously not an accident. So we'll, we'll have to see, you know, one of the things that's so infuriating, it's not just with the media, you know, and I have a, a couple of articles about this between the media and the, uh, the woke corporation, the big tech corporations. It's not just the commission of lies. It's the omission the, the stuff that they memory hole, they're not talking about Afghanistan. They're not talking about Waukesha. You talk about memory holding the uh, the Nashville bombing. Look at Waukesha. They, that was a snap of a finger, was gone immediately. They don't, they couldn't care less. And so in this, in addition to having the lies that they tell, all this stuff that people are not getting. And if you're not watching, if you're watching CNN, you're not getting all this stuff. So the people that would otherwise maybe be turned right from voting for Democrat, and it's not just, you know, D or R, it's the principles of the being on the left. If you're not getting any of the information, if you're not seeing what they're doing, right, if you're not finding out that every single solitary Democrat that is crushing their own cities and states with mask mandates or with lockdowns don't actually do the mask mandates or the lockdowns themselves, including you know, over in Britain, they had this, you know, this big meeting where they're crushing the entire country of of Britain, but they're all sitting out there having tea, crumpets, wine and parties and everything like that, maskless, all this kind of stuff. If you're not watching the news and you're not getting the information, you're not going to know in order to be able to punish them and hold them accountable. So it's well, awful. And that's important, too, because as as Russia is preparing to invade the Ukraine, how many Americans are aware that there are about 600 members of the California National Guard stationed inside the Ukraine? Right. right. Now? Most people don't know that because it's not being reported, but they're there. Yeah. And so what happens um, as we try to stay neutral, but um, a rocket hits their barracks or they run into a checkpoint and something bad happens? I mean, I don't know. Well, and I, I'm just going to say this because. It's true. The people that run this country, they don't care about that collateral damage at all. Not they look at that as collateral damage because if that enables me to get in the war, that's okay. It's sick. We're really sick. 
But um, anyways, now, uh, before we wrap up, I wanted you have a new article out uh, on how the U.S. military has been changing up its training routines and what that means for how we as citizens and civilians should be doing. doing. Uh, we, ha- we, di- we have discussed this a little bit in a recent podcast, but I want you to expound on the article and you th- and what you think the significance of that is for us as citizens with regard to preparedness. Absolutely. So there's two big changes that have been made. The first one focuses mainly on the Army, the Air Force, and the Navy, um, and that is that they're fast trying to relearn how to operate without GPS. So the reason why we're so successful in against Iraq and against the, uh, Afghanistan and against the Taliban is we rely so much on technology, right, a GPS and the ability to, make, to, to launch a, a rocket and have it fly through somebody's window from half a world away. And we can only do that because of GPS technology. But since Russia and China have both ran some satellite tests this year, the U.S. military has panicked and said, we got to learn how to fight without GPS, without all this technology. So they're on a crash program to learn how to do that. So the question I pose to people is, if the U.S. military is planning on fighting without high-tech radios, without um, GPS technology, without necessarily all the great computer networks they have, shouldn't you? Right. Right. So, so many people in preparedness overlook the map and compass and they go to a GPS. Well, if they take out the GPS network, it's not going to matter to you. Um, that's going to be gone. And the other thing that I, that I like to point out to people on that is that you should never have been relying on GPS in the first place because the federal government can turn that off to you anytime they want. Right. right. You, you, your GPS unit won't be broadcasting the right code if they flip it over to military only. So it's called differential GPS. They used to do it all the time. So there's that. The other one, which I find more interesting, is the United States Marine Corps' new program. And they're training, instead of training to operate as battalion or regimental size elements, they're training all of their people to operate in squad or platoon size elements behind enemy lines with no resupply. (coughs) Excuse me. And they're saying that we might be able to resupply them with ammo and medical gear but not food and water. So they want every Marine to be able to find food and water wherever they are. This is not not too unbelievable because it actually happened once before at the Battle of Guadalcanal. Right. But the point that I make is that this tells us what we think our odds are of winning the next war. Your professional soldiers would not be conducting a guerrilla war in the enemy's rear area if you were winning. You only conduct guerrilla warfare as a major power if you are losing. So it would indicate that we don't have any illusion that we will be uh, pushing China back to their own waters, that China will be coming our way and we're going to have to hold what we have in the rear areas and try to tie up their supply chain. So what that means for you and me is that the front lines aren't necessarily going to be in the South Pacific. They're probably going to be on our Pacific coast. Oh, my God. Prepared for that. Yeah. The, the, the real problem with China, though, is their demography, their, their population. I mean, they have 1.3, 1.4 billion people, and we have 330 million people. Uh, so even if they lost half of their people, they would still have twice as many as we have. And I've talked to, you know, I've talked to a colonel that I know on two issues. One is on 
the the Russia and Ukraine. He says, well, I don't think that, you know, Biden is just going to give away Ukraine. We've talked you and I talked about it. And it's like, well, he, they're not going to do that. They're not going to go along with that and just give their own territory up. That's one. The other is with China is like he says, well, they're not going to come over here. You know, they can't invade us. And I'm thinking they are. Aren't they in the Bahamas right now? I mean, they are all over South America They're, I think they're in the Bahamas. They're somewhere so close to us. And they have they have bigger uh, carrier groups, don't they, than we do? Now, they have two two carrier groups. We have a whole lot more than that. But um, there is video coming from an island in British Columbia, which is part of Canada. Yeah. Uh, and it has Chinese soldiers on it. And they claim okay. that it's, it's like it's like when we have an embassy, we do put Marines in them. And that's their excuse. Right. We have local security troops there, but they're observed marching around the island and doing things like that. So so that I, I heard about that. They're training. They said they're training in north in uh, north yeah. winter country. And and I also have um, a, a buddy, uh, Mark Sibley. He wrote a great book called yeah. Mongol. And it, and, it, and it posits a Chinese invasion of the United States. But Mark points out some very interesting points that most people overlook. There are already millions of fighting aged Chinese men yes. in the United States. If you look at illegal immigration in Washington State, Seattle and Northern California, it's Chinese illegal immigrants coming across in boats hmm. uh, that are smuggled in. How hard would it be to smuggle in battalion and regimental sized units that way? Not very. They'd get in the interior and they'd vanish. So yeah. in his book, they those groups infiltrate that way. And then they meet up with longtime Chinese who have lived here who are able to buy guns and able to buy ammo and able to go and buy exactly. rent storage units. So it's something that you need to think about. And and China is absolutely willing to spend two million lives trying to invade the United States it is something they they don't think about life the way that we do. I, I constantly say this to people. Stop trying to apply Western logic to Asian right. thinking. They are not the same thing. Right. Well, and you think about the issue. So there was a show, I think it was called The Cell or something like Sleeper Cell. And they were talking about the issue of like Islamists. I have been saying this about the Chinese they have, as you said, they have millions of people already in the country, and they are—they also have Chinese spies all over the place, including all over our universities, right? So it wouldn't be anything for them to just call up the same way that we think of a sleeper cell, just coming yep. out, you know, and, and getting the activation with the Chinese. They could absolutely do that, and they would have more than enough people, like you say, if they lost 2 million. If you have 20 million, you lose 2 million. How many are in our military? I mean, sure, we have civilians, we have hunters. I mean, the hunters alone is an army right there. But if you have the the actual military, that's 1.5 million, I think, something like that. You know, I mean, you already have enough Chinese to have uh, uh, an invasion. So it's, again, I mean, I, I've been saying that for like years now. And it's just, it's stunning to think about. People have always thought, first of all, they first they thought Russia was the problem. Then they thought Islamism is the problem. And sure, Islamism is the problem, although it seems rather quiet now. But it's China. It's, well, and they're funding and, and, the Confucius centers and all of this stuff all over the place. 
China doesn't necessarily have to actually take over much of the United States. They just have to disrupt us to enable yeah. them to do whatever they want in the rest of the world. Because once they have total control of the South Pacific, which they almost already do, um, then they control everything because 80% of the world's shipping yeah. passes through the South China Sea. Yeah, there was, a, and and like, this is kind of a segue, but there was an article to, that I, saw, I read today and they were talking about demography. China is actually having the same issue with demography where they have all these old people and they don't have enough young people. Obviously, the one child policy was not a good thing. And um, getting, you know, aborting all the women who are the baby makers, also not a good thing. So now they're freaking out because they have this this population gap and everything. But that's such a long term strategy or a long term issue that even if that's the case and they degrade because they have not enough working people, that's 20, 30, 40 years. That's not something that's in the short term. They're going to be activated and powerful enough to cause major, major problems in the short term. Right. Maybe 10, 10 years, you know, for the next 10 years, they're going to be dominant at least. And who's going to oppose them? If it's not nobody. us, there's nobody to oppose them. You know, is India going to yeah. oppose them? India also has 1.4 billion, you know, but they're not, they, and they have problems with India, I know, but it's like, they're not going to do it. So, um, I don't know, it's it's kind of crazy, but like I said, I've taken the black pill, I just watch, I pray, I watch, offer commentary, see what happens, and uh, your name is Joe Stradamus, but I also think about that. I say, well, all these things that I'm thinking about are just coming to fruition all over the place. So it's a biblical time right now, don't you think? Yeah. And, you know, last last week you asked me how old Xi Jinping was because yeah. uh, I said that he had some goals that he wanted to accomplish before he dies. He is 68 years old. Okay. Yeah. So uh, I don't know life expectancy in China, but it's not a whole lot more than 68. Yeah. Great. <laughs> That's comforting. Uh, well, listen, thanks again for another great Tactical Tuesdays podcast, Joe. Again, I uh, want to thank you all for listening. Please share these podcasts with your friends. We definitely provide information which could potentially save lives. As I mentioned earlier, you can catch all the podcasts on my website, brooktalksamerica.com. They're also on iHeart, Spotify, Google, and Apple. Joe's website where you can get not only his books, but his great articles, tactical-wisdom.com um, and as I mentioned the, the latest article is out and it's talking about what we just discussed about how the military is changing how they're training so we need to do the same as with all this stuff hopefully we'll never need it in real time but better to have and not need than need and not have so let's get prepared we'll see you next week on brook talks america and of course we want to wish everybody a very merry christmas uh hope it's a great time with your family and friends and of course free no masks no psychodrama i hope that's the case um so <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, I would never have the, the, the sadness that's happening with family that are not letting their relatives come because they're not jabbed is it's a psychosis. It's become a religion and it's absolutely ridiculous. It is a religion. You're so true. The, the coronavirus, because they're godless heathens, of course, the coronavirus is the religion. The mask and the jab are the sacraments and the little demon dwarf Fauci Mangala dog torturer is the pope the the branch covidians 
so true. That is so good. Well, we'll see you next time. Merry Christmas, Joe, and Merry Christmas to everybody. And we will see you next time on Book Talks America Tactical Tuesdays.